0: Hello and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity Podcast. I'm Christine Burns, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking to someone who knows firsthand about the seriousness of an often misunderstood condition, postnatal depression. The birth of a child is, of course, a big event in every society. It's surrounded by stereotyped ideas about what it's supposed to be like. Rather like a wedding, everyone wants to own a piece, everyone's supposed to be happy and new mums are under immense pressure from the assumption that they'll bond and be happy with their baby as a matter of course. For my guest, it wasn't quite like that, though. I'd arranged to meet Elaine Hensack in a hotel in Warrington. It was just before lunch, and so the noises you occasionally hear in the background are the kitchen staff as they readied the restaurant. Undeterred by this, however, I began by asking Elaine how her experience had turned a happily-anticipated event into the stuff of nightmares.
1: Well, I was very much wanting my baby. I was 32 years old. I was very happily married. I was a school teacher. Everything in life up until that point had been planned, prepared. And when I did get pregnant, I was so excited. I genuinely felt I was the only mum in the entire world ever to get pregnant. Basically, because that's how special it felt to me. And for me, it was obviously very unique and a time to be treasured. I planned efficiently, I read up, I had everything prepared. I think the baby bag for hospital was packed before um, I was actually 1 month pregnant. <laughs> everything was so organized and efficient. And even my, well my husband was also a teacher and we'd even time the pregnancy so it would coincide with me having an extra long maternity leave because of the school summer holiday. So everything was, as I say, organised. And I remember at the antenatal classes, which of course I signed up to immediately that we had one lady in the group who already had had a child and each week she was the voice of doom because it seemed that she'd had a tough time first time round and no matter what the midwives said the voice of doom always put the mockers on it for us very pessimistic and the rest of us basically rolled our eyes every time she spoke because the labour dreadful breastfeeding, awful, and I remember vividly the day the midwife discussed about postnatal depression and I'm quite now quite ashamed to admit that I thought, well I'm fine, I'm, I'm not the type am I because I'm so organised, everything's planned, everything's organised and I'm such an optimistic, positive person, it won't happen to me. And of course, when the voice of doom said that she'd had it first time round, I know I wasn't the only one who thought, typical, she's just the type, the moaner, the whinger, never has a good word for anybody. God paid me back because... Sadly, towards the end of the pregnancy, I was quite poorly and ended up having a couple of stays in hospital for water infections. But I even used that as a learning opportunity because it gave me a chance to refine my hospital kit bag even more efficiently. I had seen people go into labour that were very cool, calm, and collected about it. I'd seen the ones that yelled and screamed, and then ultimately the babies appearing the following day with all the bouncing helium balloons. So in my mind's. I had rehearsed the birth as well it was on my birth plan and it was going to happen perfectly. So you would planned this with
0: military precision and you you got very high expectations and as you say you didn't see yourself as being the type to to have depression because you, you were welcoming the event so much
1: so what actually happened then? Sadly the birth really didn't go to plan at all We ended up that the baby was born naturally, but it was extremely traumatic. He was immediately whisked away from me because the cord was round his neck. I then felt almost like I'd been abused because this wonderful moment I'd dreamed of for nearly 30 years of this newborn being placed on me didn't happen. And then there was more panic and mayhem because they said I had a retained placenta. And I remember thinking, but I'm not a cow. And I honestly thought that only happened on it couldn't happen to vets on other programmes and my normal intelligent brain just didn't seem to function I also apparently had a hemorrhage and I was had to, had to be whisked off to theatre so when I did come round I felt like I'd been dropped from a great height and all the doctor told me was that I should think myself lucky that had it been a home birth I'd have been dead and that was the sum point of the talk anyone talking to me after that birth but within 24 hours of this near death experience I was on a very big big high that all my dreams had come true and i had my wonderful little baby dominic he though hadn't read the same books that i had he didn't sleep beyond two hours at a time and i began to get more and more exhausted when I was discharged from hospital, I immediately had felt myself, I had to go back into my pre-mother mode of everything being efficient, the washing on, the cushions straight, the post sorted, everything efficient, everything organised. And I tried to keep that pace up at the same time as the demands of this new little baby that was waking every two hours. I did breastfeed because again that was on my list, I passionately wanted to do it and I ended up having infections through that with mastitis a couple of times and I seemed to put myself into this complete looking back hyperactivity mode, everything had to be done and I could do it. I pushed people away that had started to offer to help, like my parents could see I was getting increasingly exhausted, but I kept saying, no, no, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. Meanwhile, the clock was ticking back to work, back to work. And Dominic had been born in late April and I was due back teaching in September. The last week in August he was rushed into hospital here in Warrington with suspected meningitis and we had 10 days in hospital, the pair of us. The doctor suggested that I went back to 100% breastfeeding him because he needed the goodness from me and again we were back to being disturbed every two hours. So finally when we were discharged my GP gave me two weeks off because she, for Dominic's sake. However, another two weeks passed, I went to the GP and rabbited on to her absolutely 300 words a minute, I think. Absolutely just jabbered and jabbered and jabbered, trying to convince her, and myself, I guess, that I was fine. But I wasn't, and she picked up on it. I think what she noticed was obviously my hyperactivity. I'd kept brushing aside the fact that I wasn't actually sleeping, but that didn't matter because, hey, I was fine. No, I didn't need any extra help um, because I could cope, couldn't I? But for me, I had gone through life, I guess, with everything just happening for me. I'd had a successful career. I'd passed my exams. I even passed my driving test first time. So, I guess the concept of failure and guilt were feelings I had never really had before. So, this wasn't something
0: that depression was marked by you knowing that you felt awful. In fact, it was quite the opposite, that you you were instinctively compensating for that and perhaps overcompensating
1: as well. So, what was the point at which you became aware, I have depression? when the gp listened to me on that particular day and put her pen down and said elaine i now have to say to you that this is no longer the trauma of dominic this is about you i feel you have postnatal depression and to be honest i could have kissed her i wanted to throw her at my arms round her because she gave me a reason she gave me a label an explanation for why i was feeling i was drowning I remember as a little girl sitting on the side of a swimming pool when I was about three or four, and my big brother decided it would be quite fun to pull me under. And he swam underneath me, pulled me by the legs, and I remember the bubbles and that feeling of drowning. And luckily for me, a lady standing at the side must have thought, oh, what's that? Oh, it's a child, and literally picked me out. And I felt at that point, that's what I needed. I needed rescuing.
0: You, presumably, you told your husband and your family as well. How did people react?
1: My husband, I think, was very relieved as well that there was some sort of explanation because the poor guy, he literally didn't know from one minute to the next what to do, what to say to be right <laughs> I mean we all, we all know as women don't we of course we're always right and if they ask what's wrong it's the infamous nothing that they're supposed to be telepathic and know but the difference at this stage was I didn't actually know what was wrong so how on earth could I expect him to so Nick basically survived on practicalities of what needed doing that the baby needed changing and really approached me like he was walking on eggshells because he could be the world's best husband one second he'd only have to look at me and then I'm yelling at him for doing that wrongly so I guess he coped by saying yes Elaine yes Elaine the same with my parents who were very very much concerned my mum's panic about it I couldn't handle and the same with my grandparents who openly I could tell they were so worried and in a way that almost scared me and I, I pushed them away even more. But my father had a, a slightly different approach. He'd suddenly turn up unannounced and say, Oh, I was just passing, as if. And he'd tell me that he needed bonding time with his grandson and I had to go away. Um, he suggested I went for a shower or a bath or had a sleep. And because he put it that he I was having to help him, I accepted that because it gave me I guess a feeling of being helpful again and that was something that I just felt so useless that I was no use to anybody so by my dad having that approach that was very very useful. I think the thing that surprises
0: me most in, in your story is that I was expecting you know, the classic depression and actually the people around you were evidently aware that you were not behaving normally and perhaps were, were the first to spot it um, How did you actually work out of that in the end?
1: Unfortunately it got a lot worse before it got better because I still carried on with this facade that I was fine. I was on antidepressants, I did go to a support group which both worked for some people but at that point for me they didn't really and I continued to decline. The biggest problem was sleep deprivation. I was adamant that i could cope i could manage and with dominic waking me still every two to three hours what i started to do was feel why sleep because there's no point because he's going to wake me so i might as well write christmas cards i might as well do the ironing and i'd actually banish nick to the spare room because i said he needed to work and sleep obviously and i was fine and rather than upset me he agreed to that Um, But unfortunately, the week before the Christmas as the mum I had longed to be, I completely broke down. I got up this particular morning feeling that the world was okay, some days you do, but this, um, this particular day I did, and Dom and I had a very nice morning. Just before lunch I decided I needed to get dressed, and he should, walked upstairs, and as I did so, an avalanche of nine months of sleep deprivation, exhaustion, depression, everything else just crashed on me and at that moment I honestly felt like I really wanted to physically hurt him luckily I didn't, I put him in his cot and over the next 24 hours I just went through total and utter self-abuse and self-harm because I discovered that by physically causing pain on myself, momentarily, it stopped this madness of a brain that had ceased to function rationally or function at any level. I just wanted it to stop. I didn't want to die, I remember yelling at people. I just want my brain to stop. It's a little bit like that feeling on a Sunday night. You know when you've got an exam the following day and you're thinking, right, I'll go to bed early. 11 o'clock, right, okay, 10 past 10, or 10 past 12, quarter to 1, 25 past 1, quarter to 3, and the more you're thinking, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, oh no, I have only 4 hours, 20 minutes to get up. It's like that feeling, but magnified 3 million times, and your brain just cannot switch off. And I think that's the point that people must get to when they do take that final step of suicide. They just want it switched off. Luckily for me I didn't get that far um, and, the fu- and the following day I was actually admitted to a psychiatric hospital which again that feeling I described earlier of drowning I really felt it at this point and I just couldn't function anymore. Even being asked did I want tea or coffee was just too much. I just couldn't do it so I really did need rescuing. And what form did that take? I was told that because it was Christmas, I'd chosen a bad time, and they didn't have the staffing for the local mother and baby unit, so therefore I would have to be admitted to just the general uh, women's psychiatric ward, which had people who were alcohol uh, abuse people, ladies with bipolar, senile dementia ladies, a totally mixed bag. Um, I was also told that because I'd threatened to harm my baby I shouldn't be with him and because I'd actually attacked my dad and I'd hurt myself that I needed watching. Now I've since learned that actually being separated from my son, especially because I was still breastfeeding, was actually very, very cruel and shouldn't have happened. But at that point I really didn't care. I was actually in hospital for two months in total. Um, I went through various different treatments, medication wise, nothing seemed to be working and finally I had ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, which they do say is quite a good treatment for people with purple psychosis, which was the most severe form of postnatal depression that I was diagnosed with and actually it did seem to make the turning point for me. I think because as I explained, my brain was in overload and couldn't click the off button. What I had to do when I had the general anaesthetic, obviously it switched my brain off. And that's what I had been so desperate for. So then I guess when I was back on the ward, it was as if my brain and my body had been reminded how to press that magical off button so once that started happening uh, and my sleep was reinstated little by little I rebuilt my life again so I wanted to spend time with my son I wanted to go home more and more and the huge irrational highs and the huge irrational lows began to be less deep, less high, less severe and I learned to function again
0: your description really paints a picture of something that is life-threatening and life-altering and and life-stopping. You've come out of that. How many people are similarly
1: uh, affected? Actual purple psychosis affects between one in 500 to 1,000 mothers who give birth. Some ladies can have it after every birth. I was, wa- was warned that if I did ever get pregnant again, the chances of it happening were very high. However, what they did clarify it with was by saying that obviously because of my history first time round, everybody would have been on my case second time round. We haven't actually gone on to have any other children. I still really would have loved another baby, but I think everything considered, it was probably best not to. Um, but they actually say that postnatal depression does affect now probably one in five of every mum, every new mums, which is an awful lot of new mums out there. Um, Obviously the spectrum I went through, I seem to hit it at every plot on the graph it seems really, Um, and obviously my story is very extreme, but equally there are between about 40 and 60 mums in the UK every year who do commit suicide. So it's not just something to be taken lightly that, oh, pull yourself together. I had six on my own and I coped. Um, It needs to be taken very, very seriously.
0: And as you've you've illustrated, there is no particular type. It It can happen to any
1: woman. Absolutely, and I now bitterly regret my my original assumption that I wasn't the type, in fact I cringe at myself for having that attitude, because obviously it doesn't have any, like any illness, your level of intelligence, your level in society, your family circumstances, it has nothing to do with it, I, I felt that I had it all so i had no excuse no reason for going like this maybe had i been a single mum on my own in a one bedroom flat with no support whatsoever maybe the guilt might not have been as big i don't know Mm. but but that's why i really did feel that i i shouldn't have had it but by goodness i did now you've now made this your your life's passion as a writer and speaker and you've you've written a book. Yes, I ended up. I went back to teaching eventually when my son was about two and a half, and it wasn't easy. It was still some days were very hard, other days were fine. But the bad spells got uh, reduced bit by bit, and likewise the good spells got longer and more frequent. And I remember reading one day in the in the uh, local paper, there's a church service to commemorate World Mental Health Day and it was actually the church that I'd gone walk about in my nightie in the early hours of December morning when I, I totally flipped and I decided I should go And I sat in the congregation listening to members of the clergy and members of the NHS talking about mental health problems and the stigma and the ignorance that surrounds it and the fact that many people don't even admit to it, they won't put it on their CV because they feel so ashamed and many people feel that that's it, once you've been tarred with that brush there's no way back. And I got this urge that started in my toes, worked its way up until I literally felt like something or somebody was saying, get up there, girl. So I did. I walked up the aisle and said to my vicar who knew me, please can I tell my story, stood in the pulpit and just spontaneously spent two minutes saying, you know, mental health problems can and do affect anyone. You don't have to be the type, but given help, support, time and treatment, you can get your life back from there I was asked to speak at the local hospital um, a week later and six months later I spoke to 700 nurses down in London and each time I spoke people said to me I should write a book because I would offer people so much hope and I think that was a four-letter word that for us well for me personally and for my family eluded us for so long so few people said to us hang on in there the chances are that she will make a full recovery in the grand scheme of things this is a very short space of time in your life Uh, so I basically felt so inspired and motivated that I wanted to do it so I did, it took me four years to do because obviously I was a wife, a mum a full time teacher and I'd learnt I couldn't burn myself out anymore and finally in January 2005 my book called Eyes Without Sparkle was published and people can buy it in shops and online at Amazon presumably yes absolutely it's uh, actually just as well this January been published in French as well so it's it's going a little bit more uh, worldwide as well and you do talks as well how can people book you basically through my website which is elainehanzak.co.uk it's My website is also growing and in the process of being revamped as well to become very much um, a place for people to put any excellent resources down there, if they've had any particularly brilliant treatments, if they've come across any new research, if there's a wonderful group in their locality, please let me know about it so I can share that and pass that information on to others. What's the most important thing you'd say to people in, in, in your position? not to be ashamed, not to suffer in silence. I did hear a very, very tragic story of a wonderful lady called Angela who lived down in New Quay. She had spent 14 years trying to conceive her her baby. When little baby Sophie was born, Angela developed purple psychosis and she walked off the cliff at New Quay, leaving little Sophie now without a mum. Now, Angela's family want me to tell her story, and I passionately agree with that because I'm the happy ending. I'm what should happen. I'm still around to fully appreciate the wonders of motherhood that I had longed for for years. I finally got those. But if we all work together, let's make sure that there's no more Angela's.